Well, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, there was one man who united the nation. There was one human being that brought all these different um, bickering parts together. Do we know who this one man is? He was the star of the hit TV show, Tiger King. You know this? Is he up here? There he is. He just brings, brought the nation together. When everyone was, was huddled and had to be stuck inside, there was one person that said, I know what to do. I'll make a whole television show describing how I am trying to domesticate tigers to be these nice, cuddly kittens. And despite all of the questionable things that happened in that show and practices, um, he, he did raise the question that many of us were asking, can you domesticate a tiger? <laughs> Is that something what one should do or what one could do? And um, what was interesting <laughs> was what happened throughout the show, besides all of the absurdity and profanity and things like that, was there was many scenes uh, where, where, where Joe Exotic himself gets attacked by uh, tigers. And it shows maybe that Joe and many of those on, uh, that worked with him and for him had too low a view of a tiger. Don't worry. Uh, he made it out alive, so did the tiger, at least on this scene. But he had to pull a gun and shoot it in the air, right? Because can you domesticate a tiger? It is, it's not just a cuddly kitten. They are hundreds and hundreds of pounds. They are strong. They are built to be mean and hunt. Their claws are giant daggers. Their you don't want to be scratched by that type of cat. That is not just a mere scratch. That is more than a mere flesh wound. That is your death, right? This is the question that we have before us. Can you domesticate a tiger? But now let's talk about Jesus. Can you domesticate Jesus? Can you domesticate God? I think Joe had too low a view of tigers, but I would argue that we have too low a view of God. And so the title of my sermon today is Your God is Small. Your God is small. And the, the, the path that we're going to take to talk about this uh, is this. We're going to look at the, the mystery of the unlikely, the majesty of the unexpected, and the message for the nation. So the mystery of the unlikely, the majesty of the unexpected, and the message for the nations. You and I are begging for there to be less and less mystery in this passage, and God himself keeps giving us more and more mystery, right? So let's talk about the, the mystery of the unlikely. If you're just now joining us here this morning, we are in the book of Isaiah. We've been in it for a while. Uh, where we're at in the, the, the drama now is Isaiah is prophesying 150 years into the future when Israel is enslaved by the Babylonians. And to this enslaved people, he has this message that says, don't worry, there's hope. And that hope is going to come from the most unlikeliest heroes imaginable a man named Cyrus. Who is Cyrus? You may have heard of him from the last chapter. He is the militaristic pagan king of Persia. There's a little picture here. We don't know what the man looked like, uh, but here he is, Cyrus the Great. If you got that as your moniker, the Great, you've done something important in life. But here's what verse 1 says. This is what the Lord says to his anointed to Cyrus. I have to imagine that 
Isaiah choked a little as he was writing the anointed right there. To his anointed. The last chapter, he talked about Cyrus as the shepherd, which is a term you would describe the priest to care for the people. And so he's describing Cyrus as the anointed, as the shepherd. Others call him the king of kings. And they are wondering, is that an okay thing to name this person? Is, uh, is this possible? Like, so there's two questions that happen with just this first verse. The first question that comes up is, how can God partner with a pagan king right after punishing Israel for partnering with pagan kings and their foreign deities? Like, how can God do that? Second, how can God work with someone so profane and if you don't know who Cyrus is, we're not, I don't think we're getting the disgust that Israel might have felt to hear Cyrus, the anointed. Uh, and so maybe let's bring it to our modern day. There's, a, there's another Cyrus you or I may know about, uh, one Miley Cyrus. Um, and, and, and what if God said, this is my anointed? I mean, I, I think her music's great, but she is a little crude and a little profane at times. Um, I mean, what if God said, this is my anointed, this is my deliverer that will save you all? And you would go, isn't the girl that sung Wrecking Ball? <laughs> like, are we sure, God, this is what you're doing? Like, are you crazy? God, do you even know what you're doing? Come on, like, this is not okay. And we wonder, can God do this? And this is what God is trying to say. This is exactly the type of thing that I would do. That I would use someone, you would, you would be so unlikely, you would never even predict to be part of this, that I will deliver you with them. And so the word anointed is an important word here, that Cyrus is the anointed. The word anointed in the, the Hebrew is Mashiach, which is where we get the word Messiah. Okay. Translate that word into Greek, and we now get Christus. Translate that into the English, and we now get Christ. So Miley Cyrus is the Christ figure. Get how, get, do you feel how that kind of feels like, oh, please don't say that about God? That's how they might have felt about Cyrus the Great. He is the Christ figure. He is our Messiah. He is our deliverer. He is our Jesus. Ooh, that feels like we're getting into trouble here. Um, okay. I don't know if we're okay with that. This feels like, and just to be clear, this is not licensed to pick any crude person and say that they're the Messiah figure in, in, in history or in our modern political times. Okay, let's just be clear about that. Um, but the, uh, Cyrus is a brilliant leader. Cyrus is a brilliant leader. At, at Persia's zenith, Persia was in charge, was, was, was ruling 40% of the known world. Like, get that, 40% of the world Persia was in charge of, dominated, had under their dominion. That's wild. And what that means is, before Persia and after Persia, no other empire has ruled more than they did. They were in charge of more of the world than anyone else in history and ever, probably ever, right? And so it's, it's understandable that you would call him the king of kings, and so Israel, though, is enslaved to Babylon, and then they hear this prophecy about Cyrus coming to power, and you have to wonder, 
How is that good news for me? If big bad Persia is going to take over the Babylonians, that's like one enslaver replacing another enslaver. Good for them. That doesn't really mean anything for me. So where is the good news here? So there's the disgust. There's the wonder, God, what, like, what are you doing? Like, what is God up to here? And how could God do that? Because everyone tried to conquer Babylon. Everyone wanted to take over the big bad Babylon. And Cyrus does what no one else in the, could do in conquering Babylon. Verse 2 tells us how. Verse 2 says, I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down the gates of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. God just says, how? I'm going to do it. (laughs) Your God is too small. That's how it's going to happen. Because Babylon, at the time, was the largest empire in the world before Persia knocks them off. They were the largest empire in the known world. And and they, they, they were incredibly brilliant. They built their city They built their city around the Euphrates River. And by building it on the Euphrates River, what they then did was they used the river's resources to build moats all around the city so that the moats not only fed them fresh water, but then now the moats became the barrier for enemies coming to storm the city. So then the moats would be around the city, and then you have the fortified walls behind that, and no one could figure out how to take over Babylon. It was brilliant. It was, it was a brilliant military move. And so the question then is, how can Cyrus do this? How can this king overtake someone who no one else could do? Well, one fateful night, the king of Babylon is having a reckless party, drinking it up, right? Cyrus does what most believed impossible, and he conquers the city by going a couple miles upstream and builds a dam to block the water flow from the Euphrates to fill the moats. Work smarter, not harder, right? So he does this. So the water levels then subside, and Persia just walks right into the city through the waterways under the gates. But yet, once they get inside the city wall, there is still the bronze gates that they have to to get through. And yet, inexplicably, the gates were not locked. How did that happen? Well, God said, I'm going to break the gates, didn't he? Like, your God is too small. Like, of course God would do this. He said he was going to do this. God is going to do something bigger and better than we ever even expected. And so once Cyrus conquers Babylon, he then receives this scroll. Remember, the Bible that we have is not, uh, was not given to us in this form. They are a bunch of little scrolls. They didn't have the chapters or the verses, but he receives chapter 45, right? He receives a scroll telling him, this is what was prophesied about you 150 years ago. And it says that you're going to take over Babylon. And then it says that you're going to free the people of Israel to go back to their homeland. And then you're going to build a temple with your own money to help them out. And (laughs) think of any empire and any dictator going, sure, let's just wipe them out. he wildly Cyrus does it. And this is not just biblical history. Historian Josephus records this, that he lets this historic edict to let the people of Israel go, and he pays for them to go and build their temple. Like, what? (laughs) Only God 
Like, I think our, God, our view of God is too small. God would do something wild like that, wouldn't he? God is orchestrating all of this. And so you have to ask, like, if God would use Cyrus, the person we would think God would never use, who else might God use in our lives? You might think about yourself, like, God would never use me. Hmm, he used Cyrus. God, God could never use me. He used Cyrus. <laughs> he's, used, he's used all different forms and all different speakers, and it seems like God likes to shine in the most unworthy of candidates here, in the most unlikely of places, because our God is too small. And so let's not limit who God can use to accomplish whatever purposes he wants to accomplish. And so we looked at uh, the, the mystery of the unlikely, but now let's look at the majesty of the unexpected. And so once we see this, this mystery of the unlikely, it usually responds in a like, oh my goodness, God, you are awesome. The majesty of the unexpected. However, sometimes the majesty is too bright for us to really appreciate it. The majesty is, is so much, it's overwhelming, and we, we, we see God using the most unlikely person, and we go, what are you doing, God? How could you use Cyrus? That was, the, that was Israel's response. How could you do this? God is using the most unlikely and giving us the most unexpected in our normal responses, God, what are you doing? And in verse nine, God says, I have no time for this nonsense. Verse nine, God says, woe to, who, woe to who quarrel with their maker, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? The, the people are saying, like, why did you create us this way? Like, why wouldn't you put more time into making me, into doing this? Do you even know what you're doing, God? Like, is anyone flying the plane? How many times have you asked that this, these last couple of years? Like, God, I don't know what you're doing. I know I have. Like, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. It doesn't make sense to me. Have you said that? Like, all of us could have said that for many multiple reasons. Like, God, I don't know what you're doing. Are you in charge? And God many times is so, so careful and tender and gentle with his creation. But there are times when God responds to the way we need to hear it. And the way Israel needed to hear it then was not in that gentle, gentle rebuke. He responds with, do you see the audacity for which you're asking here? You're the clay, I'm the potter. The clay should never come back to the pot and be like, I, I should have had a handle, thank you very much. Like, it's, it's absurd that we would do such a thing, is what God is trying to emphasize here. He, he's trying to emphasize the audacity that the pot shouts at the, the potter as, is the same ridiculousness is as you kids have created a Lego masterpiece, and the Lego says, I wanted to be a car, not a house. You're like, that doesn't happen. <laughs> I formed you. I made you. That's what I wanted you to be. That is where God is trying to say, like, let's make sure you understand the chasm between us. Creator, creation. But I also want to go, I get it. Because I've asked those questions myself. I think Job asked those questions himself. Like, Lord, what are you doing? Like, why doesn't God fix all of this? And I think my, my standard pastoral response, and the one I, I believe and I give to you, 
is God is doing something about this. He's using you and me to do something about it. Like God works through human beings to bring shalom on this earth. That's how God works primarily. And it's a beautiful thing that God would even be willing to partner with us to be a part of that work. And so let's be a part of that work. But I think if you're honest, you go like, amen to that. But part of that feels still a little bit unsatisfactory. Because couldn't God just at the snap of his fingers fix it all? Isn't he that type of creator that we just acknowledged? Amen. He is. And so I think when we ask the question, but why doesn't he do it himself? I think our answer, my answer, and your answer has to be something along the lines of, I don't know. I don't know why God doesn't do that. But what I do know is that he ultimately will do something about it. What I do know is that we actually have the end of the story. We actually know where it's all going. And so we actually have confidence that God is going to work all things for the good in this world. And so he may be doing something that we don't understand in this time. But it may be in a different time that we understand. He might be using different leaders and different people to accomplish this task, right? And you go, I don't understand it, God. I thought I had the plan in place. Like, what are you doing? And I think we just need to be able to say, I don't know, and yet I also want to trust you, Lord. Like, I don't know, but God will do something about it. We know the end. It may not be in our way or in our time, but God will do it. And God doesn't shy away from that dilemma. I mean, he, he emphasizes it throughout this passage. In verse 7, verse 7, he says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Ooh, that is a wild statement. That should make everyone uncomfortable, <laughs> right? I create light and darkness, prosperity and disaster. Oh, why did you say something like this, Lord? <laughs> and why do I have to preach it, right? <laughs> no, God is not the author of evil. That would contradict what God says about himself in other places, but what this passage is affirming is that God is in control of everything. That God is in control of everything, 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 everything. And just because I may not know how it works out for the good, all that does is reveal my limits to what God is going to do. Just because I don't understand it doesn't mean it isn't going to work for the good. It's revealing my limits of my understanding. And so for many years, I myself personally felt like I had to have an answer for all of those questions. And I lived into the fake it till you make it mindset of, I've got to fake like I know all of the answers. And, and I, as a pastor, I wanted to be able to provide all those answers. And I think many times we have to at least admit the limits to our understanding of what God is going to do and what God is doing. So that we're not saying this event happened means God is doing X, Y, and Z. I don't know but, I'll, but I know, but I know God is at work. I know God's doing something more beautiful than I can even imagine. I think we can sin in our longing for certainty. We, are, we, want, we want certainty and things completely laid out for us so much that we can sin in our longing for certainty and understanding of everything God says. 
And I think we just need to understand this. There's this great quote from Evelyn Underhill. She says, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshiped. (laughs) I love that. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshiped. You wouldn't even worship him. You're like, that's just another, another failed idol Uh, I wouldn't even worship that. And this is where I think verse 15 is actually one of the greatest traits uh, of God that we don't normally think about. Verse 15 says, truly you are a God who has been hiding himself. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Truly, and this is a praiseworthy statement, truly you are a God who has been hiding himself. We want a God who will reveal himself as much as possible. It removed the mystery and, and Isaiah is now praising God for hiding himself. What this, why this is crucial, it is crucial that Yahweh's hiddenness is, is a part of his character because it, it, it creates the freedom for Yahweh to have the freedom and refusal to not be contained by anything that we might think about. Like, no, God, you can't do this. There's a part of God that we don't understand, and that is great news for us. And we need to affirm the hiddenness, the limits to our understanding of our God. Like, I, we can say a lot about God. There's a lot of things in here to say about God, but we have to be able to affirm there's a hiddenness to God. There's a, there's a point to which our wisdom will not comprehend. And so we want, we want more understanding of God. We want, we want a God that, who will take our stress away. We want a God who will promise us bliss. We want a God who will never challenge us or challenge our ethics. And let me just give you this quote from Anne Lamont. She says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. (laughs) That is hurtful. (laughs) Dig it, Ed. Uh, Right. If I worship a God who loves all the people I love and hates all the people I hate, then maybe I just love me. (laughs) I've created a God in the image of me. That is who I love, not the, the God of the Bible. Obviously, hopefully, we're in alignment on some of these things, right, Uh, on who we love. But this is what I want us to do. Like, this is what we always do. We domesticate God into our obedient servant. God, do this. God, you should do this. You should do X, Y, and Z. And this is a nice picture of us, but it's not someone I want to worship. And so I'm going to ask you, do you worship a God who challenges you? Is there, a, is there a part of scriptures that you're like, oh, I don't, I don't understand. I, don't, I can't comprehend. We should be able to worship a God that we can't comprehend because that's what we would expect with the creator of heaven and earth, that we can't fully comprehend it. So God's ways don't make sense. And I want to say that's a good thing at times. And so we looked at the mystery of the unlikely the majesty of the unexpected. But lastly, let's look at the message for the nations. The message of the nations uh, is this. Because we know what God is ultimately doing, we can trust what he is presently doing. Because we know what God is ultimately doing, we can trust what God is presently doing. So if you don't understand what's happening right now, but you know the end, you can trust him. You can trust that type of God. Because God has bigger plans than you and I know. He does. He has bigger plans than what you and I know. And part of those plans is working to reach the nations. Verse 22 says this, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am the God and there is no other. God is promising to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham that I'm going to have you outnumber the stars of the sky. And when you are an oppressed people enslaved and wondering, like, is this thing going to make it? 
God's saying, I'm using you to fulfill that promise. It's bigger and better than you think. Your God is too small. Like you're going to outnumber the stars of the sky. You, you're asking, does our God even care? Like, let me just remind you, I'm in charge. The throne is not vacant. I am at work, and I'm going to give you a glimpse of how at work I actually am by bringing Cyrus, of all people, to power. And by bringing him to power, he's not only going to free you and pay for your temple, he is going to be a tool to bring the gospel and this message to all of the nations, not just to the Israelites, because we have an all-nations gospel that reaches all nations and all ethnicities. That's always been a part of God's plan here. And so our God is too small. Our God is always at work. He sends Israel back, uses, the, uses this event to spread the news of the one true God to the ends of the earth, and the, what it reveals is that God is always in the business of saving and liberating people. Always. That's, that's kind of his thing. <laughs> He's always in the business of saving and liberating people everywhere. He uses Cyrus as the Messiah, as the anointed one, as the Christ to save and to liberate God's people. But what that does is, yes, that affects the real people there, but it also is pointing to the fuller Messiah, the fuller Mashiach, the fuller Christ in Jesus who saves and liberates his people, who this Jesus was highly contested. He was the most unlikely of, of, of choices here. He's from a nowhere town. He doesn't come from royalty. He, he took on flesh and he does the most unexpected thing imaginable. He dies a death. He dies a shameful death. And in that moment, think about this. If you're in that moment and you're expecting a deliverer, a king, a conqueror, and then your deliverer comes as a human being. I thought you were supposed to be a God figure like Cyrus. You're coming as this, this broken human being and you die in front of us. I have no hope. And so for any of us here today are wondering, like, is there any hope? That's where the disciples were at because their God was too small. And it was by his death that he frees and liberates all of God's people from the chains of slavery, from the chains of death. And then when he comes, raises from the dead, victorious, that we sung about my victory, Jesus raises victorious and he is our victory. God is doing something more and beautiful than we could ever expect. And then we see that when we see the majesty of the unexpected, that we thought he'd be this type of king, but he's this type of king, here's what Philippians tells us about the reward for that type, of king, that type of king. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hmm. Because we know what God is ultimately doing, we can trust in what he's presently doing. Do you believe that? Can you trust God now? I know that's hard if you're going through something right now. But if you know what he's ultimately doing, there's, there, there's, a, there's reason to trust. And I think while it feels scary to release your control on this God, it is ultimately so freeing. <laughs> It is ultimately so freeing to release your control because when we domesticate God, what that does is it's a smokescreen for control. That I need to control. I need to know all the ends. I need to know it all. And behind that belief is that if I knew it all, then I'd be patient. Then I wouldn't worry. Then I wouldn't freak out. But that's not true, is it? We'd have more reasons to freak out <laughs> and more reasons to, to be out of control. 
I think there's something beautiful in admitting that I'm not the potter. I'm just the clay. There is one in charge, and it's not me. Praise the Lord. God is forming us and working and is at work. And so I encourage you this week, take some time to meditate and to read the scriptures and pray and say, Lord, I surrender my fears to you. Whatever it is that you are struggling with, Lord, I give this over to you because I can trust you. There's some beauty and freedom in doing that. Trust in his wisdom and timing, knowing that he works all things together for the good. Let's quit being the tiger king, trying to domesticate God. Let's quit trying to domesticate God, let him out of the cage, and that we can have every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's confess him as our Lord today. Let me pray for us.